It's February 25th, 2021. This is Vuk. By his late 30s, he had everything a responsible Persian lad is meant to achieve. A six-figure salary, a solid corporate job in London, and a resume full of status and abundance. But his lifelong dream had been to become an explorer, and so Reza Pakravan literally gave up all that he had to head to the Sahara Desert in the aim of a Guinness World Record on a bicycle. Now Reza is one of the best-known explorers around, with his own TV shows and documentaries and many stories to tell. Reza Pakravan joins me for a feature interview plus chef Haas is here with the beauty of barberies and Keon with it's all Persian to us this is conversations from to and about the Iranian diaspora I'm Gian Gomeshi this is Rook Welcome to episode number 88 of Rook. 80. Hashed or the hash. Hashed. Hashed or the hashed. Merci. Merci. I'm just trying to explain, help you. I'm help, helping you with the numbers. Two people who can't speak Farsi very well <laughs> speaking to each other on, on, on the air. Uh, welcome to those of you listening around the <laughs> around the rural world. Durud bar shoma, khoshomadid, hashtod hasht. Hope you're all doing well, okay, getting vaccinated, wearing at least three masks, all of that. Um, Kion, Reza Pakravan. Yeah, he sounds interesting. Will be, he'll be joining me in about 10 minutes or so mm. from London. So this is an Iranian-British explorer, documentary maker, motivational speaker, writer. Um, people might have seen his shows on BBC, Channel 4, Fox, CBC, Al Jazeera. So as I was saying in the in the opening bills there, he, he leaves this corporate six-figure income at the age of 37 to ride his bicycle across the Sahara uh, literally, and set other records like he's the the first person to travel the entire span of the earth by foot and bike. I mean, what he has done is quite remarkable, although I think just the fact that he uprooted his life to pursue it is, is maybe the most remarkable feat. Uh, and he has some really inspirational messages from all of that. So Reza Pakravan mm. coming up. Sounds like the modern day Marco Polo. Oh. Fascinating. Hi, the fabulous Kian. Oh, hi, Gian. Are you? Uh, I'm so you're excited for Reza Pakravan. Yeah, I mean he's he's an adventurer, correct? He sounds like he is. And speaking of Rezas, we have Captain. We have our own Captain Reza. Hi, hi, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Hello, sir. Uh, you know Captain Reza. <laughs> What about him? What now? I just got to, I mean, sorry, Captain Reza, I don't mean to throw you under the bus here. Listen, let me first explain something. I know what you're going to say. Captain Reza (laughs) is, uh, you know, he's like my brother. You know, he is a great, he's, he's a great young documentary filmmaker. Really fabulous guy. Very talented guy. Mm. Very hoshtip. We always talk about that. 
No, no, there's no but. There's no okay. but. You know, <laughs> but. <laughs> we have a, we have a. As you know, Keon, mm. out in our in our lobby in our main area, yeah. we have a modest TV, a flat screen TV that actually was. It's not so modest. It's a nice TV that was mm-hmm. given to us, and uh, and and we play music on it. We play Rook episodes on it. Mm-hmm. So if anybody stops by, our mm. guests come, they see the Rook episodes. Well, it's been kaput. I don't know if you knew this, but it no. has. It's it suddenly stopped working, right? Yeah. It suddenly stopped working, and you don't have to feign like you're. You know, so <laughs> it wasn't the end of the world, I, but it well, wasn't working. It is to me. It's just a funny story. It wasn't working, okay. and so, so you know, and I like to have some piano music playing, or, or like to play the Rook episode, right. so we yeah. can look at them and talk about them or whatever. And so it's not working. So this is like a week and a half ago. Okay. I say to Captain Reza, you know, because. Because uh, I start to buy the hype that he's peddling, that you know he knows how to do everything, right? Right. So, I, so I'm like, uh, uh, hey, uh, Captain Reza, you know, uh, the TV's not working, and he's just, I, you know, he's one of those Iranian guys who makes himself out to be an authority, you know, like he's like, uh, mm, <laughs> let me let me take a look at that, right? He and and, and so you think, okay, well then Reza's going to, he knows, gonna, what, he's he knows what he's doing. So then, uh, you know, a couple days pass, and, uh, and there's been no change to the status of the. The broken TV, and I'm like, what? What's going on? And he's like, uh, baby, you know, I'm gonna have to take this thing apart. This is, a, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'll maybe I'll come in on the weekend with my screwdriver. You know, he's like giving me all these technical stuff. I don't even understand what he's talking Fancy about. Right? Words. He's like, uh, well, the, uh, the connector in the back, we have to. I need to, and I'm like, should we call Bell? Like, is it a inter- no, 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 no? Let me, uh, you know, and, and he's like insinuating overtime pay, like whatever. He's like, you know, this is gonna be a. Uh, uh, a doozy. I, I need to say, you know, he's whirling up his oh, sleeves. I need to uh, give me give me some time with this, you know. And so I'm like, all right, uh, thanks, Captain Reza. You know, okay, if you and nothing gets done, of course, right? Zero. <laughs> like I, the, every day I walk in, the TV's just like blank, nothing. I was gonna on, say, there's no jazz playing. Th- there's in the nothing. Lobby, there's you know? nothing. You know, just like snow. If you turn it on, there's that. And so today. <laughs> Like this morning, you know, Savvy Roham is here. You know, modest Savvy Roham. You know, he's not not really a self promotional guy. Kind of walks around, and, and I and I go uh, and I walk by the TV and I go. By the way, Savvy Roham. You know, uh, maybe you could talk to Captain Reza because you know, <laughs> clearly this is going to be a huge, you know, engineering feat to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to fix this TV. Can you maybe talk to Reza and, and help him out? Or like, you know, I don't know, we're going to have to call somebody or something like that, you know. And uh, and I walk, you know, I walk into my office and, and like literally two minutes later, Savvy Rohan comes into the office and uh, yet it is fixed. It's all, I, uh, no problem, you know. And I'm like, what? What just, you know. And, and like, so Savvy Rohan, Fixed it, right? It's we a, need to promote Savvy this, it, Roham, it sounds like. I mean, that, or demote Captain <laughs> yeah, Ra- I mean, but this is a captain. He's a captain. Let, <laughs> let me defend myself and elaborate on the story a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think so uh, maybe right. if I take these two wires and connect them in the back, and I can, I you know, I was like, he was, he, he talked to me about how he's going to fix this TV for at um, least half an hour. If he had spent a minute just looking at it, I don't know. So you know. the TV is a smart TV. It connects to the internet, right? Yeah. See, this is the way he talks about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> See, and the our, fact of the matter is, our internet is working fine, but the TV is not working. 
like it's not connecting to the internet. Right. So I, so I was like, it? I want to check this. Out. Listen to this. <laughs> so I'm looking up like instructions how to fix this. My Wi-Fi is working fine, but the TV is not working. How to fix that? And they were like, oh, you got to do factory reset. I'm like, how do you do a factory reset? I'm going through the menus. I can't figure it out. I'm like, listen, like we got a show to put out. Like, uh, let me just get to it later. And I took then Gian uh, talked to Savvy, Savvy Roham about this. And Savvy is like, so uh, what do we do? I'm like, this, I don't know. It says it's got to do factories. I don't know how to do it, blah, 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 blah. Literally, like 30 seconds later, he's like, <laughs> it's fixed. I'm like, what did you do? He's like, I unplug it and plugged it back in. <laughs> Isn't that the first thing you should try? Well, see, when I know. Is I, I'm fine with, like, my, my, I mean, other than the fact that Reza spent a week and a half, you know, not <laughs> equivocating and coming up with theories and, you know, like, <laughs> I'm okay with all of that. The only part is, this is what I'm saying, the Persian guy part, where he just can't say to me, you know what, I, 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 mean, no I don't idea. know how to do, I don't know what's going on going on with you know he comes up with this like whole song and dance right uh, oh, well uh, I'm trying to I fix think the this. title of captain really got to his head He's, he really uh, walks around with authority you know you're not a real captain Reza <laughs> hey we're on an ongoing mission Captain Reza are we yes <laughs> Great. to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia with your tools oh boy. of Iranian diaspora identity. We're coming to you on SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, Telegram. We've launched our, our patrons page, folks. So we really, we, we, we ask for your help. If you're a listener of Rook, Shia, you're a listener of Rook. Yes. And you're also a I patron. Page, yeah. Yes, you That's are. True. You like what you hear. Uh, Shia signed up for five bucks a month. Aww, I thought that was very nice. sweet. Yeah. That's great. Um, you, if you like what you hear, you support our content, or you appreciate a platform dedicated to the, the connective tissue of Iranian diaspora identity, please don't wait for others uh, to, 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 to keep us alive. You can play your part. 10 bucks a month, uh, $25, uh, $50 a month, you're a rock star. It really is helpful, and it, uh, it takes you a minute. You just go to our website, rookmedia.com, and click on support us. Rookmedia.com, support us. By the way, speaking of support, uh, I had a friend uh, text me after the last show saying, um, oh, you should stop putting yourself down so much because we had Dr. Abbas Abdelhali mm -hmm. on, right? Impressive Who guy. was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so many people, uh, at least the, the, the folks that I know who listen to us and, and, and stay are in contact with, just loved that interview, loved him. You know, I thought he was so impressive. But he's, for all of us, we were like through that whole episode, we were kind of going, well, what are we, chopped <laughs> yeah, liver compared yeah, yeah. to, he's like this amazing surgeon, doctor, engineer, you know, uh, Dr. Abbas. And uh, it, was, it was even more important in the interview where I go, uh, oh, I'm, you know, compared to you, I'm a failure, which is like the cue for him to say, no, 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 Xion John, yeah. you've done a great, you wrote, you've written books. <laughs> he and instead he was like, well, yeah, I've studied a lot and I don't know what you've done. You know? so <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Abbas, I, you, yeah, I mean, you're so amazing. The rest of us are, are you know, <laughs> chopped liver. Well, uh, if you guys had studied the way I have, uh, you wouldn't be chopped liver. Uh, so, so, uh, no, I mean, he was <laughs> lovely, you know, mm -hmm. but, but he, but, uh, so, um, we should get to Reza Pakravani's. I know he's waiting. We'll get to him in London in just a few moments. Chef Haas is going to be here with how to best use barberries in your cooking, how to best use barberries. 
But first, it's Thursday. You know what that means. She's a dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym fanatic, a kook who can be erratic, but lovable, smart, funny, and on a journey to discover what we actually discovered. Here we go, Batchaha. It's all Persian to us with Kian Nademi. What do you have for us, Keon? Well, we're now approaching almost a year of lockdowns around the world, Ugh. filling our time by any means possible, whether that be through distractions or attractions. Mm-hmm. For many of us, sweatpants and binge-watching movies and shows has become the new norm. Wine is optional. Mm-hmm. It's become a pastime, a salvation, if you will, the escape from reality we all so desperately crave. For me, it started on a Monday, It was March 16th, the year was 2020. It was a cold and snowy day. In Toronto, we've seen plenty. Pacing back and forth in my hopeless despair, with a sudden look at the mirror, I gasped, (gasps) what dreadful hair! (laughs) Brushing it out to pass the time. I wondered to myself, oh, what's the point? Where's that wine? I poured myself a glass and turned on the TV as I slowly fell into a trance filled with glee. Such excitement, such delight, A world of imagination, filled with light, filled with color, melting away all agitation. And so many moons had passed and days flew by without feelings of boredom with me, myself, and I. So I'm not sure if that gave you guys any clues or confused you all into an oblivion. We invented Netflix? We we invented poetry. (laughs) (laughs) We invented rhyming. Well, that's a given, (laughs) but uh, pretend you're a kid. You're in your childhood. What did you watch a lot of? Cartoon. Okay, what's what's the most famous cartoon? Tom and Jerry. Bugs Bunny. (laughs) But even... Uh, where do you go in Florida and California? There's that uh, theme park. Oh, Walt Disney, Disney World. Yes, yes. Disney. So now what we is... We invented Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> Persians invented Disney World. <laughs> it wasn't Walt Disney. It wasn't Walt Disney. <laughs> I'm making my job way harder. So what is what is Disney... <laughs> where is this going? <laughs> Tell me, what is Disney known for? Animation. Yes, Shia. The very thing that made our childhood so magical. Well, the first evidence of animation comes from a little place you might have heard of. Oh, come Ancient on. Persia. The year was 3000 BC, archaeologists discovered. 3000 BC? The location <laughs> was we burnt city in Iran, <laughs> where pottery was uncovered. Okay. Drawings of an animal seeming like a goat, when spun really fast, away it would float. Sorry, I had to. I'm done rhyming. Right, yes, my friends, <laughs> the world's first ever animation was found on a goblet in the burnt city, or Shahresukhteh in the Sistan Baluchistan province, the Mm. southeastern part of Iran. Covering 151 hectares, this was one of the largest cities at the dawn of the urban era, dating back to 3,200 BC. No, sorry, yes, 3,200 BC. Yes, I read that right. The city had four different stages of civilization and was burnt down three times before finally being completely abandoned in 1800 BC. Yes, go ahead. We're talking about animation, right? Yes. So it was found, animation was found on a pottery 3,000 yes. years ago? Yes, I'm, uh, I'll get to that. You mean a drawing? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, Didn't no. Didn't we no. invent drawing? No, then, no, 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 no. Okay. Let me, let me oh, elaborate. Okay. Yes. Okay, okay. There was yes. a camel on the, what was it? It was a goat? <laughs> well, close. <laughs> okay. It's stereotypical. Yes. Yeah, so, it is a goat, though. So <laughs> you guys are killing my second. Goats. <laughs> All right, yeah. so the reason for the constant rise and fall of the city, you, you might ask, It's completely unknown, which makes this place extremely mysterious, even to this day. 
Nonetheless, several artifacts were discovered in this ancient lost city, telling a story of a once thriving metropolis in Persia. And one of these artifacts was this goblet I mentioned, which told its very own story through the use of moving visual art. Mm. So this this goblet, when you spin it around really fast, and I can show you, the, it's like a little, um, they did a little uh, redo of the images um, and how it would Who look, did? and it's just uh, archeologists and uh -huh. scientists, whoever, those people that discovered, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> I don't so know yet. You discovered <laughs> this. Asking very specific uh, say, okay, questions, yeah. <laughs> yes. So when you spin it around so really you fast. Spin, you put pictures of a, a goat yes. on a, a goblet, yes. and then so, you spin the goblet. So when you spin it, a horned goat appeared to be jumping towards a tree. Nice. to eat its leaves. Right. It's adorable. This artifact had a diameter of 8 centimeters and a height of 10 centimeters. And with intricate moving images, it's the very first of its kind. An unprecedented discovery that was very telling of the people from this lost city. They were highly imaginative, inventive, mysterious, and had a special talent for storytelling. Mm. Now, I know most of you think the oldest cartoon character was a friendly little fellow called Mickey Mouse. But as it turns out, it was a hungry little goat from ancient Persia. It's all Persian Whoa. to us. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I had no idea. This was news to me, too. I mean, it's amazing. But at the same time, I feel like some of these things are a stretch. Yeah. It's like we invented animation because there was a goat <laughs> on a goblet <laughs> 3,000 years but ago that we spun around. I mean, it was But moving. I appreciate it. Yeah. But, yeah. It, well, like, it, it was the first of its kind. Like, never... Sure. You know, like it's pretty cool seeing an image moving to in like in any it's way. It's not exactly <laughs> South Park, but it's no, a, yeah, of yeah. course. Well, listen, what do you expect in three thousand two hundred BC? <laughs> there was a goblet with a goat. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I man. actually think it's very cool, though. Yeah. Well, thank you, Keon. Uh, animation added to the list. Uh, I, I mean, most of the things you described. Pants, wine. And these are know, things it, that got us through the yeah, pandemic, that's right. I'm telling that's you. That's right. The pandemic toolkit was yeah. <laughs> invented by the, the Persians. Uh, thank you. Uh, let's get to our feature guest. Thank you, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon. Our feature guest today is a two-time world record holder for crossing the Sahara Desert by bicycle in 13 days and fastest bicycle journey from the Arctic Circle through the length of the entire planet to Cape Town, South Africa in 102 days. Reza Pakravan is an Iranian-British explorer, documentary maker, motivational speaker, and writer. He has famously trekked the length of the Amazon and has also become the first person in modern history to have traveled the full length of Africa from west to east. He has walked the length of the Patagonia Desert, crossed the Annapurna Circuit in the Nepalese Himalayas on a bike, and summited the Mount Sabalon in Iran, which is 17,000 feet, by the way, all while carrying his bicycle. Reza has presented and produced primetime TV series highlighting important global issues for some of the world's top networks, such as BBC, Channel 4, Fox, Al Jazeera, and CBC. He's, he is the author of a few books, including the bestseller Cap to Cape, Never Look Back, Race to the End of the Earth. Reza is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and a recipient of the Explorer Award from the Scientific Exploration Society. And right now, Reza Pokravon joins me from London, England today. Hello, sir. Salam. Hello. How are you guys doing? Well, it's such a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. I'm glad I can uh, catch you in between um, biking across the Sahara and falling off mountains. <laughs> well, these days, uh, those 
seems to be a distant memory. Basically, my biggest adventure these days is just to go to the high street and buy a pack of nappies and for my little kid and come back home. So. Well, I know you have a kid and that's part of what would be tying you down right now. But my first question for you was going to be, what are the implications of a global pandemic for a global adventurer? Oh, well, all sorts of implication. Um, basically, I, I am spending a lot of time, a big part of my life happens on the road. Um, Every year, I, you know, getting countless flights and, uh, you know, in remote corners of the world constantly. But um, over the last, uh, let's say, year, I've been pretty much homebound and uh, tied to my computer. At the beginning, it was great, um, but the novelty wore off very quickly. It was it gave me a great opportunity to bond with my uh, baby, newborn one. Uh, but sort of a cabin fever started to set in. Let me let me dive into the the Reza Pakravan um, uh, story personality um, by asking you a general question first. Why do you have such a fondness for risk? Um, I don't know. Maybe it just goes back to my childhood. You know, I grew up during the war in Iran Iraq war. I've seen Iranian revolutions. You know. Uh, there's nothing to scare me, you know. You know, our schools turn to a bomb shelter. That's that's how I grew up, and that's what I saw in my life. So, you know, global pandemic or you know going to countries that you know they're high risk doesn't really bother me that much. You know, the, have you heard of people that you know they had very close to death experiences? And you know, I had that very close to death experiences in very early stage in my life so um, yeah but let me let me just go through a short list here and some of which we're going to get to in this interview but you, you got malaria in africa you were arrested and held by sudanese intelligence for a few days you were held at gunpoint by al-qaeda you were held at gunpoint by a human smuggler with an ak-47 and hunted by hyenas crossing the world's most dangerous borders i mean reza junk is it <laughs> is it possible to express your your risk through going on a steep roller coaster or eating some really spicy wings? I mean, do you have to cross the Sahara on a desert and almost kill yourself on a bicycle? I mean, um, look, it, it, it all sounds, uh, you know, very scary, but, you know, that there is, um, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, for all of these things, they are level of risk that I'm taking. It's it's all calculated risk. You know, I, there are incidents that, you know, it's, sometimes I'm, I'm saying there's nothing more powerful than when you're dropped in the middle of the jungle um, or you're, you're in the middle of a desert. That moment that, uh, you know, the helicopter drops you um, and you're right in the middle of it and you know the health is at least five days away. The, 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 first medical point is like five days away there's no rescue that's a really powerful moment and i had few of those powerful moments but i really calculate risks before i sort of venture into the unknown i don't you know wake up in the middle of the night and thinking of the you know well tomorrow i'm going to the amazon i have to go through a huge amount of process to justify to the networks that the level of risk that i'm taking is is sort of a manageable risks and you know i i battened on all the hatches before i actually set off to those journeys right. 
And, you know, there is a certain level of risk that, you know, there, there are things happens that, you know, really beyond my control, like, you know, being arrested in, in Sudan. You know, I didn't expect that to happen, although I had all the paperwork, all the permissions, all the everything was in place. But, you know, in, in a matter of days, the, the big dictator was, was toppled and the Sudan went to civil war and I got arrested in Darfur, um, which was very unfortunate. But we had a backup plan, which didn't work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it is it is, uh, it is unfortunate. One doesn't want to be <laughs> arrested in Darfur. Unfortunate may be a, a, a tame word to use for that situation. But, you know, uh, it's interesting that you, you say, okay, well, I have to satisfy the networks and make sure. And Because at this point, there are networks, and there probably are insurance policies, and there probably are people looking out for you, and you've got these tentacles and, and, and connections and, and networks around the world who are covering what you do and you do for them. Um, that wasn't the case when you began. And I, I, in a way, I was thinking, is what Reza does courageous? I mean, it seems courageous, and yet it's a choice. To me, perhaps one of the most courageous things you've done is to uproot your life and lead yourself into this path. I mean, the story is you were a, a financial analyst in London. And as you said, you had all the things that someone uh, would have been told that they could want in life, but you didn't feel fulfilled doing that. And at the age of 37, you transitioned from the corporate world to this adventure world. That takes actually a lot of courage to do. Uh, it's perhaps your riskiest move of all. How sure were you that this was the right path? I do agree with you. Between everything I've done, uh, perhaps that was the riskiest path that I uh, took. Um, I wasn't sure at all. Um, I spent my 40th birthday uh, with my my family live uh, in California, and um, I I spent my 40th birthday um, with my brother in a bar in suburban um, Bay Area, and sitting in a sort of an empty bar and just you know bursting into tears and i'm thinking or telling him like i have no money um i'm actually um completely broke um i'm like minus 15 grand um my savings are all gone uh not a single network has picked up my sort of documentaries and um you know i've, I've written a book not a single publisher is interested in me not a single sponsor is interested to pick me up and i don't know what to do what is what is next uh, you know going back to finance uh, by then i deleted my linkedin profile i, I basically killed all the return route to to finance and uh, I, I started thinking oh well i might have to bite the bullet and just go back um and then finally, as I, you know, give up on everything, uh, then one door opened and that led to another and that led to another. And then the rest is history. I can really picture that story of you at 40 in the, in the bar with your brother. I'm curious what your brother said. I know you told your mom that you had quit your job and decided to call yourself an adventurer. And her reaction was, uh, was that she has another word for adventurer, which is, uh, you, you can tell the story. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, she, she always believed that, you know, that, 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 that she thinks that adventure is another word for being unemployed. Even up until today, um, you know, but a typical Iranian mom, um, when she wants to introduce me uh, to people, she always says, oh, yeah, my son who was, you know, working in investments, uh, <laughs> you know, market in London. Uh, now, yeah, he's he's doing, you know, uh, adventures and that kind of stuff. But my son, you know, wasn't 
financial market. <laughs> like, you mean oh, the, no. the, the National <laughs> Geographic series and CBS and all that? That's not enough <laughs> now, BBC? No interest whatsoever in any of those. Um, <laughs> That's that's amazing, uh, and yet um, not surprising. But the other part of this that's really crazy is that you weren't like this amazing guitar player who gives up the financial world at thirty-seven to play guitar. You didn't even know if you could do this. I mean, this is it's it's amazing that you had the confidence because from what you've said, I mean, you wanted to become an explorer and and make adventure television and and now we can look at you and go, "Wow, this guy actualized his dreams." But how did you even know you could do it? You said your biggest outdoor experience at the time was two days of camping at a music festival. I mean, you you didn't actually know you could be the guy who's crossing the Sahara and shooting it and filming it and making these kind of documentaries. So tell me about that. Do you know what, Gian? Um, they, there's a famous saying, say, ignorance is a blessing. So, um, yeah, uh, perhaps my um, ignorance and, you know, that the level of uh, incompetence and, you know, and not knowing what is what is exactly entail um, helped me. You know what I'm saying? My um, I, I really didn't ha have a clue how am I supposed to make money out of this world? Uh, you have worked in uh, television for um, for a long time and uh, as you know there's no simple path you know that not necessarily you you go to the film school or the right. television school you end up working in television that's right. not uh, the right path. I'm actually quite curious to know your opinion about this um, but there is no blueprint and I didn't have any blueprint to follow someone said to me you know what if you want to do this you just have to do it over and over again, just do expedition after expedition. Start something small and just go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what I've done so far from, you know, a morning bike ride and turn to all the way through like five months, six months being on the road. Well, f first of all, I think you're absolutely right that there's no blueprint. Uh, and also, uh, we are in a world where um, media platforms and, and media reaches is, is, is changing so rapidly that it's hard to, you know, it's hard for executives at old school networks to even know what is going to work five years from now. So what you've done and doing it uh, yourself and then licensing it is arguably the least risky thing to do. I mean, it's really smart as it's turned out. Um, but there wasn't a blueprint. And, you know, there was, I mean, it's not just that it wasn't a blueprint for how this is going to work on television. There's not a blueprint for some of the things you've done. No one had crossed the entire Sahara Desert on a bicycle before, partly because seemingly no one had that idea. Where did you even get that idea? No one, perhaps no one was stupid enough to do that. <laughs> um, I thought if I want to be relevant, uh, and especially in that age, I really don't have time. I, I really need to go big. And I thought, well, to go big, maybe I just have to have you break the world record. Uh, I looked at different geographical locations and um, I realized, well, okay, Sahara Desert, what I, I can I can bike, maybe I can bike across the Sahara Desert. <laughs> and I applied to the Guinness World Record. And to my shock, they came back with the um, latitude and longitude with a lot of rules and stuff like that. And I'm just thinking, where the hell is all of this came from? You know, 
um, and yeah, and once I had something to work with, that became the reality. That's, that became my reality. It took me about a year to get myself to the level that I had the confidence that I can actually do it. And, you know, once you, you've done that, you think, okay, you know, I, what is next? And then you go and do something bigger and then bigger and bigger and bigger. How did you start these trips financially? It, it, a few moments ago, you said that you basically spent all your money. And that, that kind of answers the question because I, I hadn't seen this anywhere in terms of the research. Uh, I know now you have networks, you have programs, you have sponsors. When you go on this first major journey, this crossing the Sahara Desert, did you finance it all personally? And, and did you even have a sense of what the costs of this were going to be? It wasn't that expensive, to be honest. I mean, I, I did it on, on, on cheap. I, I did it with a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, it was that cheap. You know, you, you, all you need in, in a Sahara desert is a bit of food and, and some water and a guide. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, and, 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 and a ticket. To, to get to Algeria and Sudan and Chad and that sort of places, which they're not really expensive. So whatever I've done at the beginning was my holidays, going away. Um, the, where I lost all my money was um, basically I have to live with no salary for a while. When I resigned my job and, and left the corporate world um, and went on a big journey, um, that was all sort of sponsored, I was all sort of, I, I managed to, after the Sahara, I started getting sponsorship. Um, so all these times, you know, money was, you know, flying out of my pocket. Um, in fact, expeditions weren't the things that was, you know, costing me money, because while I was on the road, uh, my requirements were quite minimum. And, uh, you know, normally I had a bit of a sponsorship um, or, Fifteen twenty dollars a day—that was my maximum spend. Huh. Um, it, it, it doesn't cost much, you know, cycling across the uh, across Kenya or you know trekking across Patagonia. Th those things are fairly cheap. Right. But what was costing me a lot of money was going to the film school, renting a place in London or San Francisco, right. you know, paying hefty money to the landlord, <laughs> uh, and then I got to the stage that I didn't have any more money, so I just have to like couch surf um from friends to friends um you, you must have had friends and family thinking that you're crazy at that point right you've gone from this uh swanky london financial guy to now couch surfing and and uh going to kenya on a bicycle especially in iranian culture couch surfing is quite frowned upon <laughs> right. <laughs> you know uh, i mean between you know british friends here it was it was all right but you know uh, you know, between families, we were really shocked. Um, like Bichara, she should. What happened to him? Yeah, you know, like he's he's divuneshu. should exactly. You know, uh, I'm going to ask you a little in a little while about this. Um, there's a moment on your cap to cape journey where um, post malaria, where you really think you can't go on anymore, and there's a there's an inspirational story of what gets you going. But but before we get to that. I wonder in the early going, like when you do this first Sahara trek, why you didn't give up? Because, you know, there's a story of how you, you know, okay, so you decide you're going to break the record, you're going to cross the Sahara, you begin training with your bike in the Sahara Desert, and six months in, you realize it's horrible. You're, you're bruised, you're beaten, you're sunburnt. Why didn't you give up then? Um, 
I wanted to give up, but the fact that I couldn't give up because there was nowhere to go. <laughs> even if I'm, you know, uh, the, the, the problem with this line of job is even if you want to give up, you somehow have to get yourself out of that situation anyway. <laughs> right. So you might as well just carry on, you know, um, that is a problem. So, you know, once and once you're out of that situation, you're already forgotten about it and you might as well just carry on. I want to come back to these uh, incredible feats and, and, and like I said, that journey from cap to cape, uh, the length of the world. Take, take us back for a second. What were, you, what were you like as a kid growing up in Iran? Um, Middle-class family, mom and dad both worked in television, um, uh, you know, growing up in a, in a sort of a television family post-revolution. Bo- both my mom and dad worked in sort of for foreign televisions, and then they went back pre-revolution to Iran. They met each other in national television. They they worked. They had us, and the revolution happened, and then we, we were in the country. Then war happened. Um, so we were cut off from the rest of the world. Um, our sort of, I remember the... the biggest inspiration for me in those days was Tintin. I was really sort of <laughs> interested in world geographic and, you know, any, you know, the Iranian kid, they, they know Tintin. And that was up until today. I, I always say it in my talks that that little boy, Tintin, that was the, that was our only contact with outside world. You know, I went with Tintin to uh, Congo. I went to Tintin to Americas. That was, that was the, that was a culture book. Huh. Uh, that was the that was a effectively a bible to to geography to uh, to to stories um, of different part of the world, and when I sort of grew up a little bit more, um, I started reading a lot about um, sort of explorers, um, especially British explorers like Shackleton, um, Scott, Stanley. Those sort of guys. Um, I grew up in Iran playing basketball, sort of a semi-pro basketball, uh, through all my teenage time and and sort of early university years, and and then then I come to London. But by, by the way, I, I don't think North Americans uh, know Tintin as well as as dodgy as the old cartoons are. Grow, growing up in England, I certainly knew Tintin and. Uh, I know people in Belgium where he originated would know him, but um, I remember coming to Canada as a kid and and talking about Tintin and other kids were like, what, what, what is Tintin? But I do know that Iranians know Tintin, right? This, As you say, it was kind of a window into the world. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, it took me a while to understand why, uh, you know, all of us were so obsessed with Tintin. Um, and, you know, I, I totally get it now why, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, th- there's no equivalent to it. Um, I mean, nowadays, you, you know, if you look at Tintin, but, you know, it's, it's quite a racist book. It's antiquated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, looking at, in, but, but you can see, you know, when it was written, uh, you can put it into context, you know, in sort of a few in Belgium was colonizing uh, Congo, you know, it, it's sort of a, that a sort of a mentality, that sort of a, uh, it was written in that sort of time. So yeah, um, that was our window to the world. Were you an adventurer as a kid? In other words, would it have been obvious to your friends in Iran that you would be a guy who would end up biking across Africa and setting records? Not really. Basically, perhaps another inspiration for me those days was my dad, which was, um, you know, really encouraging me to to get out 
outside and experience sort of outdoors. Uh, he was taking us to the mountains, you know, as a kid. Um, you know, he had, uh, he had, I had an opportunity to travel with him a lot when he was making documentaries. Um, so, you know, somehow I, during the summer, I could, you know, go out and, you know, be, you know, changing his tapes or, you know, putting a tripod uh, together for him and, you know, what he was filming independently, uh, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was, I was exposed to traveling. I, I traveled perhaps more than all my friends in, in inside Iran. Perhaps Tintin and my father were were really good. They sparked my imagination to the world of traveling. By your early twenties, you leave to uh, England, where you study. Did you did you think you were leaving Iran for good, or did you think you were just uh, going to study and that you were going to return to Iran? I had a very clear vision. I wanted to come to London, and I just wanted to go to finance, and I wanted to make lots of money. That was my clear vision. Um, I chosen finance because it was the perfect time um, to be in finance, especially in London, financial market. Uh, it was a prime industry, finance was booming. I knew that, you know, if I get to the financial education, I'll be fine. Um, I'll be, you know, working in a, you know, really prime industry. And, you know, I saw my my mom and dad's life, you know, working really hard, long TV hours for that much money. Um, and I thought, oh, I know better. I'm going to go to finance and I'm going to make loads of money and I'm going to prove you guys wrong. And then fast forward, you know, a few years later, <laughs> you know, I was, I was laughing at myself uh, how foolish I was. You know, I didn't follow my passion and I ended up doing something I didn't really like. So... Although you I did prove to. that when you set your mind to do something, apparently Reza Pakravan can do it. I mean, it, whether it's becoming a, a king in the financial industry or, or, um, or a king in the, in the global adventure. Just in terms of your connection to Iran, that journey from Cap to Cape, so this is from the Arctic Circle down to the bottom of South Africa. This is perhaps your, your most spectacular and most challenging journey you've taken, uh, where you start at the top of the world, you make your way through Russia, Egypt, all the way down through Africa. Part of that was you went through Iran, and I, I was wondering what it was like as an expat trekking through Iran for you after exploring so many other unknown lands to you. Yeah, I, I mean, um, exploring Iranian uh, Iranian wilderness uh, wasn't um, so f uh, alien to me, but you know, I was so excited when I got to Iran because, firstly, I could eat well. I was traveling through some horrible places in Russia, um, which I had to endure horrible food. Um, and Russia is a place that you pedal and pedal and pedal and you get nowhere because it's so big. It's empty in the middle of Russia between big cities. It's just this one line highway. If you're lucky, you see a one truck passing by every, I don't know, 20 minutes. And, um, yeah, so much horrible food. The roads were terrible. Um, so by the time we got to Azerbaijan, got a little bit better. But by the time I got to Iran, I passed the border. The first thing I did, I went to the um, to the first restaurant, and I had, uh, you know, because I was burning six thousand calories a day, so I could eat whatever I wanted. So I ordered. I went to the uh, this restaurant. I ordered two mahi sefid. <laughs> 
two cello mahi sefi, two. The guy was shocked um, <laughs> that's how much I managed to eat. And I finished the whole thing and I ordered another um, portion of rice to take with me. So, yeah, uh, the guy thought I'm, I'm completely must be starving. Um, so, yeah, through Iran, I, I ate so well. The roads were great. Iranian roads are pretty good. And it was mountainous. It was great. You know, my travel partner also really enjoyed it. People re re were really friendly. Everyone's... Um, helped us a lot wind was with us so it was it turned to be a really really good experience uh, one of the things you've said actually in, in your documentaries by the way we're going to link to your website and um for people who are just coming to to get to know you through this interview um you should follow Rezan and we'll and we'll make sure that we have a link to your your site which is quite comprehensive and it has links to a lot of your different films and series but one of the things you say is one of the great challenges of Africa where you've done a lot of your journeying and adventuring is is what to eat and how to eat and where to eat um, that said when you do eat sometimes it doesn't go so well you um, I guess infamously in terms of your own journey contract malaria um, somewhere in and around Kenya I think uh, on this big uh, trek and this is when you uh, it looks like things are really going sideways you are sidelined um, it's interesting to me that when you have malaria there's some moments where you're you're on uh, camera talking about this and and you say the only thing you can think is I have to keep going this is despite the fact that you can barely move <laughs> for a few days still you get up you don't give up and yet when you get back on your bike after some time you you really are at the end of your physical abilities and in, in in this in in as much as i've watched the series that you've done this is, seems like your darkest moment where you just think i can't i'm not going to make it i'm not going to break the record i'm not going to get to cape town i'm not going to go the entire length of the of the world um, there's a story you tell about how there are people in the sahara who start running alongside you and give you energy to keep going. Can you describe that, Reza? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I got to the, the bottom of my uh, energy. It was, I, you know, squeezed every ounce of will out of my system to, to keep on going. My body was battered with malaria. Then I uh, was hit by heat stroke. Um, so I had nothing left in me. You know, my body was sort of a ravaged completely um, and I, I basically had a really really dark moment I thought look um, you're like 38 you live in the tent you don't have any friends you know um, you can't remember when was the last time you had decent portion of food um, you know you're completely broke uh, you try to you know do maybe this is really beyond you why don't you sort of give up and Go and enjoy your normal life, you know. Maybe this is this is the dream that's really, really beyond you. This is someone else's dream. Right. And, um, you know, I thought, okay, um, that's it. I'm just going to go to um, Nairobi and uh, get, a, get a flight back. But, you know, in this sort of career, um, as I said, you know, you can give up, but um, uh, where where do you want to go? You cannot call sick. <laughs> you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. Right. You gotta you gotta carry on. So I I thought, okay, I'm gonna get myself to the first village, and um, I'm gonna catch a lift, and I'm gonna go to uh, Nairobi. 
uh, as I got on my bike and started sort of a pedaling, uh, I was passing through the Samburu tribe territory. A really, really beautiful people. Um, they, they have beads um, hanging all over them, uh, really, really sort of beautifully dressed. And as I started passing through their territory, the, the warriors, the Samburu warriors, they started running alongside me. It felt they were so excited. Uh, they were so animated. They they felt like they were you know they hadn't seen a cyclist going through their territory, and they were they were all smiling. They were running alongside me. They gave me gave me courage. They and I thought, wow, this is great. These guys believe in me, and I, I have fans here. You know, they're mm-hmm. you know you do something interesting, and you know they see your you know what the state you are at. And these guys gave me courage, and I thought, wow, maybe, maybe if I get to the first village, maybe I can revisit my uh, decision to give up. And let me just think about getting to the first village and and decide about it there. So I got to the first village uh, after doing that little ten miles, uh, fifteen miles. Um, then I thought, okay, this wasn't too bad. Maybe I can get myself to the next village, and I and I get a lift from there to go to Nairobi. And I started playing this mind game over and over again. And then all of a sudden, I find myself in Cape Town, um, and it just brought me to think, you know, um, the whole adventure and uh, you know the, the setting up this career uh, for me has always been putting a sm- small goals and make sure you hit that goal. Um, and then think about the bigger picture. Um, so, you know, the important, uh, yeah, the, you know, setting up a big goals, that sort of a big ambitions are, are so important, but it's always those sort of small steps that, you know, gets you to the destination. Yeah. And the whole thing is, if you want to make something happen, you've got to show up every day and take that step, or, you know, you've got to show up every day and, you know, turn those pedals or, you know, move forward. I love that story. I love it because it's so literal. It's so it's it's not just a saying that you would read somewhere, you know, it's it's literal. You're dreaming big, uh, you know, which is important, as you say, you know, you're dreaming big. I'm going to get to uh, Cape Town, Um, but it's the small steps that will get you there. It's the small pedals in your case on the bike this much each day and focus on what I got to do each day. And then you find out that you get there. I mean, it's it's. um, it's a it's a beautiful little story. It's like a fable of some kind. Thank you. Yeah, that's been my sort of a motto all the way um, all the way through. And you know, it happens in expeditions all the time. The same sort of thing, where you have to just yeah. focus on what's directly in front of you, or it just seems like too big a mountain to climb, literally. Exactly. Exactly. Hundred percent. A lot of time it happens every single time that I've ventured to the unknown. When those kind of people are, the, the folks who were in Kenya or, or in the Sahara who are running alongside you, do you do you get to know them? Are you still in touch with any of them? I mean, they're, they're a lot more meaningful than Twitter followers, I think. You know, <laughs> they've, they've impacted your life. What kind of relationship do you have with those people that you meet along the way? Uh, especially with those people, I don't have any relationships because um, it it was so remote and we couldn't un- speak the same language. Uh, you know, I I spent two days crossing through their territory, but you know we couldn't understand each other. But you know, we had a cup of teas and you know they took me to their homes and it was 
it was it was incredible hospitality from them but um, unfortunately i don't think they have email address or you know whatsapp or <laughs> even mobile they're, they're not on instagram <laughs> i don't think so right. i don't think they are <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised though because i you know i saw um when i went to the amazon um the first thing I was really shocked by. I mean, we went to the first tribe. They were they were called Ten the Tembe, and I was really shocked when I arrived there. I realized that the head of the tribe has a Facebook page, and he uses a smartphone. <laughs> I was shell shocked. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me though. Having having been to uh, some remote parts of the world, it's it's uh, um, that that also makes sense. Um, yeah, they were, they were also listening to Adele as well, by the way. <laughs> well, at least they have good taste. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, there's, there's just sticking with this um, mental preparation and 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 the way you do this, uh, this piece. I at times in your videos, Reza, I hear you saying you you do this self talk. Yes, I yes you can. Yes, you can. Uh, and I want to ask you about the importance of self self talk and those kind of affirmations. What what is the mental preparation you have to do for your journeys? At this point, you're an old hand at it. I would I would imagine that you, there's some steps that you go through. What have you learned about keeping yourself going mentally? Well, I mean, those days obviously was um, very. Uh, I mean, majority of the things that I used to do it was like very sort of endurance based. I still, you know, a huge amount of my work nowadays also, I mean, because the places I, you know, normally go to requires a huge amount of endurance uh, preparation, not only physically, also mentally. Um, and I basically those days I didn't really know how to prepare myself, but nowadays I have a very clear vision of how to prepare it. If, I, if I'm about to kayak the, 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 the river from source to sea, I live it every day till the day I actually depart. And you know, preparation for all of these journeys is the key. There's a huge amount of preparation, mental and physical, goes through all of these journeys. If I have to climb, um, you know, I, spend, I become so obsessed with that climbing uh, that you, know, you cannot see me off the climbing wall i'm always up there uh, if i have to you know go to a place that i don't know the language and i need to learn the language that becomes my obsession you know day in day out i live that i if i have to you know make sure that um you know i can climb a mountain and i can endure that i every day i make sure i'm, I'm climbing the mountain until the day that i in all of these journeys 70 percent of the success is down to preparation but uh, some, what you just described, some of that is physical preparation, climbing the, the mountain or, or preparing in that way. I'm, I'm wondering about, first of all, you, you've been through a lot. Like we, I didn't want to explore it because you sort of gave me the short form of what happened. But when you spend days in prison in Darfur, um, there's, there's going to be some trauma associated with that. Do you see a therapist when you get back to London? Like how, how do you deal with the mental implications of all that you go through? Um, to be honest, um, there is nothing um, that can prepare you for being in prison in Darfur. <laughs> there is uh, there is no mental preparation for it. But I think the sense of humor, um, you know, having that, you know, looking at things in a different way and be able to 
make a funny situation out of them and actually laugh at it and laugh at yourself being in that situation. Remove yourself from that, you know, really difficult situation and look at it from different angle. Um, try to look at it, look at it in, in sort of a humorous way. That is definitely helping, helping me a lot to get through this difficult situation. I mean, when I'm in Darfur in, you know, in, under arrest, uh, you know, all I'm trying to think is, okay, this, you know, how often people get on, you know, go under arrest in Darfur, you know, that's makes them make a really good drinking story. I can take, tell that to anyone. No one can top that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, I laugh at it and that makes life easier. With that, good for you. If you can find the humor in that, that really is a, that's a, a brilliant way to mentally prepare. I wonder about um, how the dynamics of how you do this have changed now that you have made a name for yourself, now that you're known around the world as this global adventurer. Um, in 2019, you traveled the entire length, length of Africa from Senegal to Somalia, but you were doing this while presenting and producing a television series that has aired on Fox. It's aired on BBC, on Channel 4, etc. When you go on these journeys and make documentaries these days, I guess you have a crew with you and and you have equipment. And does that change the dynamics of what you're doing if you're not just a guy on a bicycle in the Sahara with maybe one friend or one person with them? Definitely. And I, I think that has changed also due to the nature of my job. So those days I was an adventurer. So what is adventurer is obviously the guy who's doing an adventure. Um, you know, you you try to prove a point of that you, you can actually do something extraordinary. Um, whereas an explorer um, is a different, has a different definition. Um, explorers, this is my definition, are storytellers and they tell stories that changes people's understanding about the world that we live in. And that is my job. That's my job title. So um, I create those stories through uh, books and um, and sort of a television programs. Um, and I always look at things that are so important, the stories that are so important to, to the global audience and try to share those stories. So yes, um, you know, I'm traveling with a, with, a, with a camera crew these days, but I'm actually chasing something else. I'm chasing uh, the facts and, um, and stories that provide people of a better understanding of this world, you know, I'm, I'm, but I'm traveling along the uh, Africa's most dangerous borders or you know, reporting on um, the impact of the expansion of the Sahara Desert, desertification and global warming on on terrorism across the, the Sahelian belt in Africa. This is a knowledge that, you know, I spent months and months, um, you know, acquired and lived with those people talk to them, uh, traveled and lived their lives to, un you know, to understand these sort of very complex issues, the sort of a tribal conflicts, um, to, you know, then turn that to a sort of a television program and share it with a, with a sort of a wider audience. That has become my passion. And that's what I've been working on over the past um, a few years. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, my, my career has 
change and yeah you know and, over, I'm, and i'm glad over, you've i'm glad you've just described this because i um, because I really actually want to ask you about this, this evolution from uh, now that I think I understand the lexicon from adventurer to explorer, um, because it, it's clear watching your work and following you that your imperative has has changed from winning records and endurance, as you say, and wild travels to addressing things like climate change and the impact of outside forces on indigenous peoples. And I was thinking about you and thinking like when you visit remote places on the planet i mean you always you see beauty you see you you find amazement you share that but you also see poverty you see disparity you see racism you see war you see political intentions you see environmental issues what impact have those kinds of experiences had on you in recent years well, it, a lot of them are really dark, and uh, of course, you know, as much as you you like to be tough, you know, when you see um, you know those harrowing situations, definitely uh, sort of impacting you. And but, however, when I'm when I'm out there, and you know, I find it, I have a privilege to to see those stories and and um, and have a better understanding about how the world works. And I feel my job is to share those stories. Um, so I'm looking at it as part of my job. And I'm, I, yeah, I'm sure you know there are many times that you know mixed emotion really crushed me, and and you know I find myself in a very difficult situation, and I and I have to live with those situations for uh, for for a while. You know, you always go back and revisit those horrible things that you've seen, but you know. It's part of a job, you know, nothing is perfect, but I absolutely love it. What is the issue that has most captured your imagination in, one, in, in terms of wanting to create change? Is it is it the environment? What is it that has, has really either shocked you or moved you to the point where that's something you really need to focus on? Um, I've, I've been focusing on over the past uh, few years, my major focus has been mainly on indigenous people around the world and the impact of outside forces, including environmental issues um, on their lives. Um, and, you know, a couple of things really um, hit me through my previous travels. One was when I traveled to the headwaters of the Amazon, to the primary forest, um, to the territory of uh, uncontacted people. And I saw, um, you know, those people are not allowed to be contacted because as, a, as an outsider, we, we carry viruses. Uh, you know, we, we are coming from a populated area, going to, you know, the territory of people that they haven't been vaccinated. Uh, they can easily catch a virus. And, and with a simple handshake or a little exchange can eradicate the entire tribe. Um, so when I when I went to um, you know see them from distance, um, and I saw how their territory is just becoming smaller and smaller and smaller due to the global forces of development, gold mining, uh, deforestation, right. logging, right. narco's, that kind of stuff. That hit me really bad. That was quite emotional to see you know those people have every single right to live in that territory, which belongs to them. And but you know. Unfortunately, the development squeeze them to the smaller and smaller pockets. Does it feel? Um, 
I don't want to. Does it feel, if not strange, I'm trying to find the right right word. I mean, is there guilt associated with the fact that you will go and see such things or um, experience the lives of folks in in certain parts of the world that are dealing with extreme disparity, say, uh, and then return to your life in London? Um. Yeah, well, uh, there are complete different worlds, aren't they? Uh, So when I come back from um, those trips for for a few days, my head is in a completely different place. It's very difficult to adjust. Uh, But after a while, you just have to to get on with it. I'm not sure if that's a a right answer to your question, but Uh the disparity is huge. All I can say, like, you know, Chad to London is only five hours away. But... um, you know, disparity between London and there is just completely two, di- yeah. two different worlds. And let me ask you, I'm asking about your personal feelings, so let me ask you about your personal life. I know you're married. You you mentioned your, your little kid earlier. Um, I'm curious about you getting married. Who, who is this amazing person who's going to put up with you uh, <laughs> traveling around the world? I mean, is, she, is your wife an explorer as well? No, but she traveled in more places than I have. I mean, she's been in more countries than I've been, so that's why she can tolerate me. So she's very she's understanding that this is your gig and this is what you're 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 gonna, you're not going to be around at certain times. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's our understanding, and I think she came to my life when that was my life. So um, she she has seen it all. You know, she's um, in fact when I was under arrest in Darfur, she was pregnant with my baby. Oh, wow. Is it hard on you maintaining your, you know, it's it's so hard being away from your loved one or whatever doing when you're traveling. How do you deal with that? Well, I will tell you the next time that I, uh, I will be away from my uh, family because uh, it hasn't been an occasion that, I'm, that I've been away because, you know, since I had a kid, the COVID has hit, so um, so we have been under lockdown pretty much, have been grounded, haven't been able to travel anywhere for work. So uh, I will tell you once uh, we got back to sort of normal life. You know, uh, okay, well, deal. I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you'll, we'll we'll get back in touch and find out how it's going. You know, I am um, I, I'm really amazed at what you do, and I and I find it deeply interesting, and I really like the way that um, not just the endurance part, which is fun and fascinating, but the way you share uh, with us what you're discovering around the world. So I thank you for this interview. You, you have seen so much and and truly experienced the world in a way that many of us will not do. What what have you most learned? about human beings um maybe that's a that's a that's a cliche but um i think that the more that i've traveled uh and you know when when you're when you're on the road and you are at the mercy of the road when you're vulnerable um your needs are quite basic so um I've seen more similarities than differences. I've seen there are more things that unite us than, than divide us. Um, especially, I sort of concluded that when I was traveling through, um, in my last journey, through perhaps some of the most war-torn places in the world, and I realized, you know, everyone's 
uh, want their best for their kids. Everyone go out of their way to to help you if they can. And there are more good people in this world than than bad people. Um, you know, we shouldn't really listen to media that you know painting these really bad pictures of of the world. You know, at the end of the day, people are all of them are majority of them are good people, and and they are helpful if they can. Hmm. Are your dear parents still around? Uh, my dad. Uh, passed away a long time ago, but my mom is alive, yes. And uh, given that your mom worked in television, now that you're appearing on major networks and doing these uh, huge series that are quite popular and, and um, uh, w- with, big, with big name sponsors, is she willing to accept that you're no longer unemployed? I think she quietly uh, sort of accepted that and she's quietly <laughs> proud, but I don't think she wants to mention it to me. I think she she mentioned it to her friends in her Facebook and stuff like that. She posted my stuff. She, she's yeah. still introducing you as a financial analyst. Yeah, exactly. She would say, this guy made it really big in finance, but you know, nowadays, you know, he does these sort of things. <laughs> what is the... What is the next adventure? Uh, I can, I'm sure you're planning it. Where is the next destination? Uh, well, um, I've been commissioned to do the second season for my last series. So the last series I've done for Amazon Prime was uh, called The World's Most Dangerous Borders. Um, and that the season one was in Africa. Uh, and now um, the season two will be the America's deadliest borders. Uh, so I'll be traveling along um, the the Americas, uh, deadliest borders, North and South America and Central America, uh, to tell the story of the people who live with uh, along those borders. Wow, that's going to be very interesting. That's going to be very interesting. Um, listen, I, um, I I've so enjoyed this. I I hope you you do. Um, stay safe while you're doing all the things that you do and I very much look forward to our next conversation or even getting to see you in in person post-COVID thank you for doing this brother of course thank you so much it was a pleasure speaking to you Uh, be careful take care hello to your family and khodafis thanks you korbanat khodafis Reza Pakravon there he's gone just like that he's gone (laughs) off to the next adventure you hear the phone is gone. <laughs> An Iranian-British explorer, documentary maker, motivational speaker, and writer. He's a two-time world record holder as a global adventurer. Reza Pakravan joined us from London, England today. Microphones back on, Captain Reza Gruvishaya and uh, the fabulous Keon. Uh, Reza Pakramon didn't disappoint. I expected it to be uh, uh, inspirational talking to him. In terms of what he has decided to do with his life and the way he approaches it, uh, it certainly was. And it was cute that he's now stuck in London with a baby. (laughs) (laughs) The great explorer. Um, I enjoyed that, Shaya. 
uh, it was fascinating that he he ga- he gave up everything and start from the scratch and he's amazing right yeah and 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 he did all of all that he's done to get to that simple message that he said at one point in the interview just now but he also it's it's part of his TED talk where he says uh, you take it step by step. He learned he's in Sudan or mm-hmm. wherever he was on the on the road, and he figures out that if he only focuses on making it to the next town, yeah. he he can get there. If he thinks about Cape Town, if he thinks about the end of the journey, mm-hmm. if he thinks about the top of the mountain, it seems daunting. But if he takes it step by step, it's such a, a brilliant life lesson, and and seemingly so obvious and yet so important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, truly guts, man. I I just sum him up in one word guts like this guy has is the most courageous person i've ever uh i've ever listened to really is it's amazing i don't think i'd be able to do it yeah i mean like you said it takes a lot of guts to leave a comfortable life that comfortable mm. job um friends family everything to just pursue the dreams that you had as a child that i think this is a lesson um we all have dreams that we have growing up and somehow we forget that over time whether that be family um like pushing you to pursue a certain career path or whatnot, uh, financial reasons. So, I mean, I don't know if I can do it, but I hope I can one day. But can I just say before we get to we got to get to Chef Haas, but but uh, he is methodical about it. In other words, he he didn't go crazy. He didn't sort of leave his job and and run wild into the streets of the Sahara or whatever, and, uh, doing drugs or whatever. I mean, he. He planned this out. He knew what his goal was. He wanted to be on networks. He goes, I wanted to go for a Guinness Book of World Records because I know that that would make a name for myself. It'll be easier to get uh, a network to pick up my show. So he's thinking about this in a very methodical way, which is interesting. It's not just like, I'm quitting, I want to go climb mountains. Uh, I'm I'm going to the Sahara. But this dream came from watching cartoons like Tintin, like you mentioned, or watching his father. But somehow, why didn't he pursue that right away? You know, obviously he got lost in society's uh, view of what people should do. And it's a good thing he remembered. Not not everybody has that blessing to be reminded of life. Like, you know, one day it's all going to go away, so you better make the most of it you know what's another way to really uh live life to its fullest what's that is to become a patron of rook (laughs) (laughs) rookmedia.com i wanted to mention uh you know be the reza pakravan of this show take us step by step (laughs) Uh, the the analogy barely works but uh but we do uh want to remind you that um part of the way we stay alive is uh through um, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. We're trying to stay as commercial free as possible. So if you like what you hear on Rook, rookmedia.com, uh, it really means a lot to us. We see all the names on the list and we really thank you for it. And by the way, there's a lot of people, um, there's a, a few people I should say, who are um, becoming patrons and who have asked not to have their names. Uh, they're too modest. They don't want us to say their names on the air or celebrate them. But um, a big thank you to those folks who are um becoming patrons uh, you just go to support us on our website rookmedia.com it's thursday and uh, it's time for the next segment he's he's waiting there he's the captain of cuisine the culinary colonel the tabrizi talisman the farsi food meister the turkish tradesman it's your chef hos zare and this is rook hospitality hi this is your chef hos zare and this is rook hospitality 
Hello, Chef Haas. Hello, group. How are you? <laughs> How's beautiful San Francisco? Uh, I'm not going to talk about my exercise. I guess I got a devil eyes <laughs> or catch me bad Zadan. I hurt my back. But oh. the pango, yeah, yeah. But pango went away with a great medicine. I ha- I was lucky to do a little cooking demo, raise the money for my school that I'm building for the needy kids around the global. So I'm happy. Oh, you're what a good guy you are. And and you know, uh, chef, you you are bringing my. I mean, my mom and I are already close, but after each week w- with your segment, I talk to her about what you're teaching us and and whether she <laughs> she agrees or not. Uh, and so last week with the saffron using the, the ice, I said, "Mom, have you ever tried the ice technique?" And and she said, "No, Vali, video I watched the video, and it was still the color was better when he did it with the heat than the ice. You know, uh, so she was still she still." believe that the using the heat was there but she is she knows as you said exactly the temperature and all of that to use so uh, i still oh, want to use your ice technique you, with the saffron you put me on hot spot i have to be careful from that i don't want to mess around with the moms oh my mom is she's on it but she loves you i mean and she's uh, you know uh, you're the you. tabrizi talisman listen i see for your segment today and that you're you're gonna teach us how to best use barberies in in your cooking how to best use barberies so uh, why don't you start us off by telling us what are barberries for those who don't know the barberries are this beautiful uh, uh, small tear shaped fruit or berries they come from the uh, the bushes called barberry vulgaris they are different kinds they grow wild and they have sometimes uh, they use as a exotic ornamental plant in the garden and they're beautiful but this particular one the berries we use is uh, has a delicious flavor tartness and um, uh, we use in the iranian culture and no other countries uses as much as iranian do for culinary because they originally used the barberries for the medicine and still they do is it one of the best uh it's an antioxidant uh, right yes absolutely why are barberries important in persian cuisine well, if, great question. In Iranian, I call it, we love our sour bomb. Like if we have sour cherries, sour plums, pomegranate, we love sour cherry. So before we knew we uh, the uh, lemons, after the 7th century, we got introduced lemons from Roman, and which is originally things comes, I, they believe they come from China. So we used to have these barberries as a sour element to our dishes instead of lemon. So it's been our cuisine for a longer time. And also lemon growing is needs a lot of work and water. But these guys grow wild everything. All you need is go foraging and pick them. Uh, sorry, Chef, what do we call barberry in Farsi? Okay, I knew your mindset is coming. That would be for Mona, Zeresh. I don't want to go there. You can tell what Zeresh meaning in different uh-huh. meaning. Zeresh. <laughs> Zeresh. Okay, uh-huh. Zeresh. I, <laughs> I love the way you say Shaya and Reza have been wa- wondering what the hell we're talking about. Because they thought he was Uh-oh. talking about barber, like barbari. Barbari. No, no, no. <laughs> so, so is, is Zeresh or Barbary's, um, uh, were they more available in, in, in the, the Persian part of the world? Then, because they're not a big North American kind of uh, plant or fruit, whereas we obviously we use it a lot in Persian cuisine. 
to be you're surprised it is there's in africa europe in, in north america they grow but the uses which are common are not as much as iranian but it's getting popular because the birds love they eat their seeds and they cultivate around the world so but again when it comes culinary iranians are far ahead of the other country they use uh, this barbecue and we didn't have lemons uh, before 7th century, no. Mm. Interesting. So what are the, give us some of the usages and I guess the flavor profile, like how, how we use it for flavor, uh, Barbaries or Zedesh, okay. as those, yeah. those who want the Farsi version. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the best way to do it with Barbaries are tart and tangy. And you can use any dishes you want to give that profile. And um, I have a list of this stuff that the, what we use it and also... I'm going to talk later on about the how we can incorporate in a modern, different way. But to know about barberries, the beauty about this plant, I want to quickly say they grow, they start blooming in the spring. Beautiful, gorgeous yellow color is they're gorgeous. And then eventually towards the spring, they become clusters of green berries in the summer. And in fall, they rip in and become gorgeous red colors to time pick. Now, the tricky part is here in fall. If they are small, you pick them, they are perfect for rice and uh, culinary. But if they stay longer on the bushes, they get bigger, they spill the seeds, and it's become hard to take the seeds out. So that's the time you, you pick them, you can use it for sauces and disregard the seeds. But the, the best time in fall to pick, and again, Iranian, they love labor of love, like rocks, and we talk about saffron. When you pick the uh, barbers, one by one is the best method. You cannot use a glove because they have a very sharp turn. You can pick them one by one. But easiest one technique that you hold the branch and from the bottom to top, you slide it because thorns are pointed to the upward. So when you slide it, you don't hurt yourself. But again, at least a few times you're going to poke yourself when you're picking the barbers. So, uh, in when you use them with the rice, it's uh, we call that zedash kpolo, right? Like jeweled rice. Yeah, jewels, right? Because if they look like a box of the jewels, I mean, the pistachio, the color. But again, barberry is not only for top, but the white brain color. Because the chef, what you look for dish is the look-wise and also texture mm. and the flavor. And the texture of the barberry is like a bomb. When you chew it, it explodes your mouth and it gives you this little wake-up call. So, just parenthetically, just as an aside, um, I've heard that barberries are actually becoming increasingly popular in America. It wasn't, I mean, people didn't even know what they were. When I, I thought when I was growing up, we were trying to explain ZX to people at it. But is it true that they're growing in popularity? Absolutely. Because you know what? American be the social media, we are getting a little more like it. First step was when the pomegranate took over the cranberry juice in the United States because of, again, Nothing to do with nationalism, but the people they find out this is health benefits and all that you ever said about pomegranate much better than cranberry. Same thing happening right now with uh, barberries. Barberries are replacing the cranberry because better, more as a nutrition medicine value, and also uh, the chef's talks. Like when I start touring the America with the company that I later on became employee, I was teaching the chefs the. Uh, the, uh, the dish, but chefs are different. Uh, uh, weird. We are weird people. We look for something <laughs> unique to find about this element, and we have to get their attention. What I did was, like for example, I ground, gr I let them a little dry. I ground them a little salt. I rub my fish or meat and grill them and give them a chef. So their antenna start rising, and they are wow, what an interesting and flavor because acid is good in the food. So. That's how I got their attention and the flavor profile 
and we start cooking together and they learn and then became demand and mm. not in past uh, this is like about five years ago I was four years I was traveling but introduction was so much so good to the chefs so the company that I we buy and they told me their market increased by 100% by barbers buying from the chefs so just on the on the healthy uh, part the antioxidant uh, element they're they're dry right are they healthier when they're dry or are they healthier when you hydrate them when they're blooming well, it, the flavor, the, the, the health benefits there, but the, when you're blooming it, you're getting the flavor out, the rehydrating, and there are techniques for that. And there's a simple way of just to put it in the, in the water for 8 to 20 minutes. Why I say 8 to 20 minutes depends on the freshness of your barberries. You, when you buy barberries, you're looking for a red, vibrant color, and those are freshness, means like six months, four months been dried, uh, hydrated, and you put in the water eight minutes, it's fine. Otherwise, it stays long, it gets soggy. But if they're a little older and like a over year, they're a little darker color, you want to soak longer. And again, to uh, hydrate the barberries and keep it in the cold and dark area to keep the freshness on that one. So what you do, this is one method you use because you're gonna put in your stews or soups or their muffins or anything. You're gonna cook it again. But if you wanna use it as a garnish, that Iranian, they use more as a, more for the, the chickens, like as, uh, 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 more polo, zeresh, more, uh, you know, the right, decent right. stuff they use. So you wanna give a little bit another touch to it, which is we do, I am showing a video, you use them, first soak them, then you saute them a little tiny bit with the butter and sugar to caramelization, then you have my mouth getting water again. <laughs> uh, <is there> this <laughs> tartness and the caramelization from the brown sugar or regular sugar, you give it this beautiful texture for the, these barberries and mix with nuts is a phenomenon. Oh, like in especially yeah. Azerbaijani cuisine, we use a lot of dry fruits and the nuts combination and barberries is one of them in there. So did you explain the best way to hydrate them? Just now? Yes, I show on the both way with the water and also the uh, with the, the butter and the sugar, and also to have fun. I have a list of this stuff that you might blow your mind away. I want to see if they, our amazing, fabulous team can tell me the what kind of dish they know barberries being used. So I can check mark to see if they know all of it. Ah, I love it. So you the vid- so the video is going to be how to best use barberries in your cooking, including how to hydrate them, how to how to make them the most effective in your cooking. Can I just ask you a, qu- a quick question? Once you prepare your uh, your your zedash, your barberries, do you believe that you should finish the 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 polo like you do all the cooking you get all the rice ready and and put them on top then or do you integrate them into your rice if you're using them that way earlier well for presentation i recommend on top as a garnish but if you cook in like for me in the restaurant as a chef we cook the rice pilaf but like uh, i show the bagal pilaf at the end I toss every ingredient so keep that beautiful freshness of the color, the vibrant color. If you cook an inside the rice, you cook in it, but the color can goes away. The right, flavor is right, there, right. but you can at the end t- include in your dishes like a salsa. Oh, I don't want to say what I, I want to reuse it, but I'm going to test your our fabulous team. Fabulous. Well, I can't. I can't wait to uh, look at this video. How to best use barberries in your cooking. Uh, any questions, team? Do you know why we use zereshk as a, you know, f- for example, when something is, is not precious, we call it zereshk. So why? 
do we use it? Is, is, was it cheap in previous time in Iran? I don't, to be to honest, I don't know the, the reason. Uh, I usually know all of it, but this is, I have now you make me to go search. <laughs> you stumped, so, stumped yeah, the Shaya, show. you are very smart. <laughs> you return the question for me. My question for you was, tell me the dishes that you know Barbary used. You are very smart. <laughs> Oh. So Barbary, well, well, uh, for more. So that's a uh, Barbary that's rice with tart. chicken. Yeah. Like I said, tart flavor. You okay? Basically, you can use it in a garnish for follow that. You can use on the uh, yeah. scones and muffin, oatmeal, meatballs, cuckoo sabzi. Ah, uh-huh, cuckoo sabzi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, then yeah. on top of the soup, soup more. You put in that again. The color and vibrant. Ah. As a chef, I use it for my salsa as ceviche, like seafood ceviche, is a phenomenon. The most common around the world they use barberries is for jam, preserve, or pickle. For the people they bake, uh, the barberry is the best agent as a pectin uh, to keep the oh. sauce nice, rich, and a peck for the pastry department, people they cook all out there listening, use as a pectin for your uh, uh, pastry. And I mentioned about my grounding the barberries with salt, with the robbing the meat, but I want to give you one more thing I used to do in my previous restaurant. I used to hydrate them put them in the freezer to go they get frozen and I used to make a simple syrup with the barberries and then my bartender bar manager used to make a cocktail and at the end we dropped this frozen barberries the hydrated frozen bar in it and that's how we expand the knowledge of the people as a curiosity our cuisine ingredient with the what they are used to like with the cocktail so mm. that's been my focus as a chef with the chefs find the way they get their attention and then when they know about this, of course, as a chef, when you want to know one ingredient, you want to go to history, you want to know how they use it. And that's what these chefs, they go study Iranian cuisine, find more about our food, and they come up and they make their own way. Right. And that's a success story for me as a getting attention. By the way, uh, dried uh, b- barberries I've seen in, in granola, right? Like it's like you can, you can not hydrate them and eat them as well, right? Well, uh, they've been uh, yeah, flavored. You can uh, because by itself the uh, the barbers can be a little too harsh. Yeah, mm. like your olives. You pick olives. They're the same. So when you have a actually for me, it, the best barbers are the fresh one picked. But unfortunately, the harvesting time is like a short time, and oh, you have to go foraging. Even the the beauty of that Jianjian, uh, they last through winter when it's snow, and you can go even pick it. Huh. Well, Chef, uh, uh, thank you. We've learned a lot about Barbaries, about Zeresh, Zeresh and, and uh, we're, uh, we're going to run over to your video, uh, your latest video, How to Best Use Barbaries in Your Cooking, will be at rookmedia.com, the front page of our website, rookmedia.com, and also on our Telegram channel, Rook Media. Uh, you can find us on Telegram at Rook Media. Thank you for this, Chef. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Bye-bye everybody. That's Chef Hossare in San Francisco with Hossare. Hospitality. Again, you can see the video at rookmedia.com and our Telegram channel, Rook Media. Well, there you go. This is full time for Rook for today. Thank you, gang. Great job. Our website, rookmedia.com, is the hub of all things Rook, where you can tune into previous episodes, see our Rook moments, our Rook reads, hospitality segments, and our patrons page. We have this page of all of the guests who've ever been on Rook and links to their appearances. Rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan Ponce of the Artist, Thoughtful Begin, the fabulous Keon, 
Savvy Roham, Ahoy Mehrdad, Master Muhammad, Chef Haas, Captain Reza and Ruby Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizu Bashi. Thank you.